This is normal now. Um, so we are going to begin a journey through the book of Matthew, and like I wrote in my top story last week that you may have read, uh, the, the desire here is for us as we build a relationship, me as the new pastor, you as the congregation, uh, that we would just take a long and sustained look at the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. We'll get to walk with him through his ministry. We'll get to um, experience together his death and his resurrection, and then his call to us to go out into all the world and to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that he commands. And so that is the journey that we are beginning this morning, and we do so in Matthew chapter 1. And we are looking at verses 1 through 17. If you're not there already, that's 1496 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, But I don't hear any page shuffling, so hear the word of the Lord. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab. Amenadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerobabel, Zerobabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Ikem. Ikem, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So, I'd like to begin with a question this morning. How would you answer if somebody asked you, who are you? Think about it for a minute. Somebody came up to you and said, who are you? What would be the first bits of information that would kind of funnel from your soul up out of your mouth? For me, it would would probably be my name. And I imagine for, for most of us, it would be, I would say, well, I'm Patrick Anthony. And there's something right about that because our name actually communicates a lot about who we are. Our 
First name, usually most of us have a story about how we got our first name. I was named after my uncle Patrick, and I have no idea how he got the name Patrick. My last name, Anthony, tells a story about me as well, um, the history of my family as far back as we can trace, and, and you all the same. And while there's more that can be said to answer the question, who are you, our name is a really good place to start, and that's exactly where Matthew starts in introducing us to Jesus. He begins by telling us that what he is writing is a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this translation makes it sound like Christ is Jesus's last name, so I actually really like the updated NIV. Uh, This is how they translate verse 1. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. You see, first century Jews did not have last names. The closest thing they had to a last name would have been to include their father's name. So Jesus's last name would have been Jesus, the son of Joseph. But our cultural context, we all have last names, and so it's easy for modern Western minds to read the New Testament and see Christ placed in direct proximity to the word Jesus, and to imagine that that is Jesus' last name. But Christ is a title. It comes from the Greek, which means, or, which is Christos, which is where we get our English word Christ, and it just simply means the Messiah, or the anointed one. And Messiah is Hebrew for the anointed one. And so in Greek, the way you would say the anointed one is Christ. In Hebrew, the way you would say the anointed one is Messiah. And so a really literal English translation would be, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this would have stood out to Jesus's original audience because they were all Jews. And he's telling them, that Jesus is the anointed one that they had been waiting for. You see, their Bible, which we call the Old Testament, predicted that one day someone would come who would free them from bondage and would fulfill all the promises that God had made to his people that had still not yet come true. And this person came to be known as the Messiah or the anointed one. And Matthew wants his readers to know right off the bat that that is who Jesus is. His name is also Jesus, which is uh, not insignificant because Jesus means Yahweh saves. And Yahweh is God's name that he revealed to the people of Israel. And so Matthew's saying that this is the genealogy of Jesus— which means Yahweh saves, and he is the long-awaited anointed one, and he is the hope of Israel. Now, it's one thing to claim that Jesus is the long-awaited anointed one of Israel, but not just anyone could be the long-awaited anointed one of Israel. There were certain criteria that the Old Testament had made very clear that somebody had to meet in order to be the Messiah, or the Anointed One. And the most basic of those criteria is that he had to be a son of David, 
and a son of Abraham. Now, obviously, every Israelite was a son of Abraham, but Matthew mentions it here because Jesus is not just a son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Many of you know the story of Abraham. He's a total pagan and Ur of the Chaldees, and and God chose him for no reason other than his pure, sovereign decision to choose Abraham. And he comes to him, and he tells him that he's going to make him into a great nation, and that he's going to make his name great, and that all the people on the earth are going to be blessed through him. Later in Abraham's life, God is much more clear about how all the people on the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham that it is through your offspring that all nations on earth will be blessed. Now, this word offspring is very interesting because you can have a single offspring or you can have many offspring and you're still going to use the word offspring. It's like sheep. There's a flock of sheep over there and here's my pet sheep. Right? So, so what is being spoken of here? Is God telling Abraham that through the entire nation of Israel, he's going to bless everyone in the earth? Or is he telling him that through one single offspring, he's going to bless everyone on the earth? Well, Paul actually tells us in Galatians chapter 3. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, or the Messiah, or the anointed one. So this is what Matthew is telling us. He's telling us that Jesus isn't just one of Abraham's sons. He is the son of Abraham. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. He's also the son of David. See, David was a model king of Israel because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a sinner, even a very great sinner, Yet he loved and trusted God. He sinned, but he did not love his sin. He was a man of great faith who trusted God and he obeyed and submitted to God and he loved God's people and he had a zeal for God and God's name and his holiness. And one of the ways that God wanted to honor God with that zeal was through building a temple. You see, from the time of Moses until the time of David, the people of Israel had been worshiping God in a tent. And David wanted to build a building that was beautiful and majestic and could represent, even in the most minute way, some of the beauty and the majesty of God. And so David says to his friend Nathan, the prophet, hey, I'd really like to build God a temple. And Nathan says, that sounds like a great idea. You should do that. Well, later that night, God comes to Nathan and says, you know, I'd really rather David not build a temple. (laughs) Um, David is a man of war. He's got blood on his hands. I want his son to build the temple. And so, uh, so Nathan has to go and break the news to David. And when he does so, he comes with 
not only the bad news that David is not going to be the one to build the temple, but he comes with the good news, the prophecy that's on the screen. Actually, it should be on the screen now. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, this is also who Jesus is. He is the one through whom Yahweh would save his people. He is the long-awaited anointed one. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom God will bless all the nations of the world. And he is the ultimate son of David whose kingdom will last forever. And all of this rich history is being communicated in the simple words of verse 1. And the rest of the entire book of Matthew is evidence to support this claim that he makes in the very first verse, that this is Jesus, the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So that at the end of Matthew's gospel, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we read this. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he has all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth, and even his closest friends and followers worshipped him. Which, if he's not God, would be weird. And so this is where we're going. This is where we're going to end up. We're going to end up worshiping a man who is with us even to the end of the age and who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Back to chapter 1. How does Matthew begin to support this audacious claim? Well, he starts out with a genealogy. Because if Jesus is truly the son of David and the son of Abraham, at the very least, he has to be a son of David and a son of Abraham. He's got to meet the minimum standard of actually being a descendant of Abraham and David. And so he begins with Abraham. He takes us through Isaac and Jacob and Judah all the way to David in verse 6. And then through verse 11, Matthew takes us from David through the kings of Judah, who were the direct descendants of David, until the kingdom fell apart at the exile to Babylon. And then up to this point, all the names that are mentioned in the, in the genealogy are names that we would find in the Old Testament, even if they're only mentioned in another genealogy somewhere. But then after the exile to Babylon, all of a sudden... Matthew, in verses 12 through 16, 
traces Jesus' line through an ever-increasing list of unknown, obscure, and ordinary people leading us to a man named Joseph who was a poor carpenter, certainly not someone that anyone would confuse with royalty. And then we're told that Joseph became Jesus' legal father because he was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. And just because the names are unknown, obscure, and ordinary to us doesn't mean they were necessarily that to Matthew's original audience. The Jews were notorious for keeping meticulous family records. And so at the time that this book was written, it was possible that someone could have gone and looked up the records and found all of these names. Okay, so at the very least, with this genealogy, Matthew has proven that Jesus is a son of David— and a son of Abraham. His pedigree has been established, and by virtue of his ancestry, it's at least possible that Jesus is the Messiah. But Matthew is also doing something else with this genealogy. He's doing more than just proving that Jesus has the right pedigree, because if he was trying to just prove that Jesus had the right pedigree, this is what we would have read. It would have said, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, Judah the father of Perez, Perez the father father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, and so on and so forth. Because if all Matthew was trying to do is prove that Jesus is a rightful son of Abraham and David, then he didn't need to add all this extra information. But he did. Why? Well, we can only speculate, but we do so knowing all of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. We also do so knowing everything that comes from Matthew 1.1 all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. And so Judah and his brothers are mentioned because Judah's brothers formed the 12 tribes of Israel. And Matthew wants to locate Jesus not only as a son of Judah, but also as a son of the entire nation of Israel. In verse 3, Zerah is mentioned along with Perez because Zerah is his twin. And that is a very strange story that you might want to go back and read about in Genesis 38. In verse 6, we're reminded that Jesse is not just the father of David, but that he is the father of King David, because David's throne is the one that the Messiah is going to sit on forever. In verse 11, Jeconiah's brothers are likely mentioned because several of Josiah's sons sat on the throne of David before Babylon conquered Judah. But what always stands out to everyone is the women. Notice Matthew doesn't mention Sarah, Abraham's wife. He doesn't mention Rebekah, Isaac's wife. He doesn't mention Leah, Jacob's wife. All women that every Jew would have been proud to include in the genealogy of the Messiah. No, Matthew mentions Tamar, who uh, was Judah's daughter-in-law and prostituted herself to Judah her own father-in-law, in in order to get pregnant with her rightful heir. 
Rahab is mentioned, who just happens to be running a whorehouse in Jericho when she informed and hid the Israelite spies before God conquered the city for Joshua as he was leading the people of Israel into the promised land. And then there's Ruth, who makes a morally questionable proposal to Boaz, and who just so happens to be a descendant of Moab, uh, a nation started by incest. And then there's Bathsheba, who isn't mentioned by name. Instead, Matthew calls her Uriah's wife. Many of us are familiar with this story. This is when David, King David was supposed to have gone out to battle one spring, and instead he stays home, and he sees uh, Bathsheba bathing on, uh, on her roof, and so he has her brought to his palace. Soon after, she becomes pregnant. David has Uriah murdered so he can marry her and cover it all up. So it seems as if Matthew is going out of his way to draw our attention to these particular kind of stories. Because when we think of these stories, we can't help but think of prostitution, incest, adultery, and murder. Another thing we cannot help but think of is that these women are not Israelites. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And Bathsheba likely was an Israelite, except she married a Hittite, making her a Gentile by marriage. Another thing we can't help but think about is that these are women. At a time when women were property, and women could not even testify in court because they were considered unreliable gossips by nature. And yet Matthew highlights them. You see, he wants to remind us that people just like this fill the genealogy of Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But it's not just the foreign women who are associated with great sin. Abraham lied to save his own skin risking the life of his wife twice. Abraham also tried to take God's promises into his own hands by sleeping with his wife's slave girl so he could have a son. The stories of Isaac and Jacob and all the sons of Jacob are no better. They're filled with deceit and murder and attempted murder. And King David himself, as we've already noted, was guilty of murder and adultery as well as great pride. And then all of David's sons from Solomon to Jeconiah are massive sinners too. Uh, Some, like Manasseh, are so bad that we're told this in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh led the people of Israel astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. One of the reasons God brought the Israelites into the land was because the sin of the Canaanites was so bad that it had to be judged. And here the Israelites are living worse than them being led by King Manasseh. Even the good ones like Hezekiah are eventually exposed as selfish and full of pride in spite of the good things they did. You see, this is not only who Jesus' ancestors were, but this is who we are. This is who we are. 
We are unknown, obscure, ordinary people. We are foreign, ignored outsiders who are filled with great sin. And even if we happen to be insiders, even if we happen to be the best leaders with the right connections and all that anyone could ever want in this life, we're still filled with great sin. That's who we are. And Matthew is inviting us to look at Jesus' genealogy and see that that is both sad and ugly. Everyone on this list has exactly the same problem. And even the quote-unquote best people on this list cannot save themselves from their sins. This list of names tells us that Jesus cares about the outsider and Jesus cares about the insider because both have the same exact problem. At the end of the day, there's not much difference between the two. If you fly in an airplane, for me personally, when I fly in an airplane, I walk on and first I find the first class seats. And those look really comfortable. Never paid for one myself. Not that I couldn't afford one. It's just that it would kind of break me to pay for it. But there's certain people who have the capacity to pay for the first class seats. It's not that much extra for them given their income. And so they do so. And I don't, I don't. Uh, that's fine. Go, go ahead. They built the plane with first class seats. Someone needs to sit in them. And then you go through and then you get to the business class and those are people who are willing to pay a little bit more to stay out of coach, but they didn't want to pay quite as much to get into the first class. Those look really comfortable too. And then if you're like me, you walk back to the coach and you find your, your crammed seat back there in coach where you get, kind of sit like a sardine next to a stranger and, and suffer for five hours until you get where you need to go. Well, what's interesting about an airplane is it's filled with all different kinds of people. Every different kind of people is represented there. The rich, the powerful, the poor, and the lowly. Every, every race, every nationality. You have every single one of these kind of people on a plane. And from a worldly perspective, there couldn't be a wider breadth of different kinds of people all on that plane. Different stories, different struggles, different sorrows. And they have nothing in common until the engines sputter. And when those engines sputter and the pilot comes in and says, buckle your seatbelt, brace for a crash landing, all of a sudden, every single person on that plane, no matter their race, no matter their nationality, no matter their status of any kind of ism you want to add to their identity, all of a sudden everybody has the same problem, that we're in a plane that's going down. And that's the thing about the human race. We all have the same problem. And the way you would see people on a plane bind together and cooperate and work together to try to deal with a shared problem that they all have is the way the gospel unites us all together to deal with the same problem that we all have. And Matthew is highlighting this 
and the genealogy. Human race, you all have the same problem. Whether you're Tamar, Abraham, or Hezekiah, your problem is that you are a sinner and you need to be saved from your sin. And that's who Jesus is. And he is exactly who we need. He came to save us from our sin. He came to welcome us into his kingdom so that through repentance and by faith, we can have a real hope that every sin is forgiven and every pain and struggle in this life has meaning and purpose. We're all sinners and sufferers and Jesus is the one who heals us and rules us by his word and by his spirit. Our passage closes this way. It says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew divides this genealogy and highlights 14 generations from Abraham to David, and from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus. And what we see is we see that Abraham has given all these wonderful promises and that from Abraham to David, things kind of, they, there's some ups and downs, but things are really ascending. And then it gets to David. And it seems like David's the one. He's the one where all the promises are going to be fulfilled and everything's going to be great and everything's going to be wonderful. And David's even given more promises. But David's a sinner. And then David dies. And then his sons take over. And then, and then things start to really just not go so well. All the way to the exile. And then they really fall apart. And Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And there's actually no king on the throne anymore. When God had promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. And so then from the exile to Jesus, you have 14 more generations where it just seems like everything fell apart and none of God's promises came true. And so by highlighting this, this symmetry of 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations, what Matthew is communicating to us is though our lives may seem like chaos and unpredictable and crazy, and bizarre, and scary, filled with anxiety. From God's perspective, it's all symmetrical. It's all planned, and it's all orderly. And that when Jesus comes, Jesus comes at just the right time. So I don't know where you are this morning. If you're waiting for Jesus to come or the biggest issue in your life and in your heart and your mind right now is your sadness and your sorrow and your struggles or if the biggest issue in your heart and your mind right now is your sin that's got the best of you and it's ruling you instead of Jesus regardless Jesus is the one you need he is the Messiah the anointed one the son of David, the son of Abraham, the one who saves his people from their sins because his name means Yahweh saves. And maybe you've been waiting for him 
in the midst of something very difficult for a really long time, you can be assured that his timing is perfect and that he will come at just the right time. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says again in Galatians. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Through repentance and faith, Emmanuel Church, you are adopted as a child of God. No matter what your reality is telling you right now, you can know by faith that your sins are forgiven and that you belong to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we're so grateful that Jesus' mixed up ancestry looks just like our mixed up lives. And that Jesus' family needed him to come and save them every bit as much as we need Jesus to come and to save us. Father, we are sufferers and sinners, and we need a Savior. And you have given us the perfect Savior. And Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And so we thank you and we praise you and we worship you because you have all authority in heaven and on earth and you are worthy of our worship. And you are with us until the end of the age. We pray all this in his precious name. Amen.